The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Our reading this morning is a little bit longer than usual. Um, Please turn your scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. And we'll be reading the first 30 verses, two parables which our Lord now teaches to illustrate uh, the point that he has just made in the previous chapter, that the one who is ready for his second coming is the one who is, verse 45, faithful and wise. Faithful and wise. So Matthew 25 and the first 30 verses. This is God's word. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had, he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. 
But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord God, we pray that you will divide your word unto us now, that we'll receive that word with gladness, receiving it wisely and faithfully that our conduct might be the same. Make us ready. Help us to ready ourselves for the coming of our blessed Savior. For we ask it in his name. Amen. So if you'll hear last week, you'll remember our Lord is engaging in the Olivet Discourse. He's been asked, what are the signs of your second coming? And he's began to teach them about the nature, the timing of his second coming. And part of that is the teaching that when he comes, some will be found ready, some will not be found ready. And in that previous chapter, as I've identified already, he's identified for us two traits of those who are ready. He says, verse 45 of the previous chapter, who then is the faithful and wise servant? A faithful servant and a wise servant. He now goes on to tell us that the wise will be ready for the second coming. That's verses 1 to 13. The wise will be ready for the second coming, and those same wise people will also be found to be faithful in the commission of their duties as the second coming approaches. <coughs> Excuse me. Our Lord is illustrating what life should be like for the Christian, the sincere Christian, not the Christian by name, but the true and sincere Christian. In other words, wisdom and faithfulness, faithfulness and wisdom ought to characterize the true and sincere Christian as we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was true for the disciples then. It is true for his disciples now. God has called us to live in a certain manner as we await the second coming of Christ. And as we are wise, and as we are faithful, we will be ready then for his coming again. The passage before us, the 30 verses, obviously divide into two parables. The first parable asks us the question, are you waiting wisely for the bridegroom? Are you waiting wisely for the bridegroom? The second parable asks a similar but distinct question, are you waiting faithfully for the master? Are you waiting faithfully for the master? The first question, though, is about the bridegroom, and are you waiting wisely? Now, as we look at the parables together, we can see that they have, broadly speaking, a similar structure which helps us understand their point. Firstly, in each parable, there is a granting of a privilege 
or a responsibility, the privilege of being attendants at the wedding, the privilege of attending to their master's finances. There's a granting of privilege. The second thing we see in these parables is a description of the character and the activity of the people in question. The virgins, some are wise, some are foolish. And then in the stewards, two are faithful, one is unfaithful. And the third part of the parable is a reckoning. The reward for the wise and the faithful, the cutting off and the judgment for the foolish and unfaithful, the granting of a privilege, the character and conduct of the people in question, and the reckoning, the reward or punishment. How does this work with the ten virgins? To them has been granted the distinct privilege of not only being invited to the wedding, but also to be attendants at the wedding. The picture before us now of ten virgins with lamps accompanying the groom is an unusual picture for us. In truth, we don't know exactly what they're doing, what their purpose is. But we can say this. We know that weddings were a high point in Jewish life. The wedding could last days and days. And it appears from verse 10 at the start of the wedding, these virgins were to process with the groom into the wedding, perhaps with their lamps of a late evening, uh, escorting in the groom. We don't know exactly what's going on, but it's very clear they have a position of honor. Perhaps we could think of the bridesmaids and the groomsmen in a similar fashion in our weddings today. They have a position of honor. They're going to escort in, escort in the groom. But here we learn something about the virgins. They're described in a different way in verse 2. Five of them were foolish five of them were wise. We already know from the previous chapter how this is going to play out. The wise are those who are ready for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These parables before us speak to us about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. It's about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are some who are wise. They have readied themselves for the coming of the groom. There are some who are foolish. They have not prepared as they ought for the coming of the groom. They are unprepared. Some have brought oil for their lamps for the ceremony. Some have not brought extra oil. It's as simple as that. And here comes the problem in the parable, at least for some of the virgins. We read there in verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, we don't need to press the parable too hard. We know the bridegroom is Christ. Christ's second coming is not delayed, as if he's caught up in traffic or something like that. It's just it means that he hasn't come when they expected him to come. That's the whole point. Five of the virgins expected him to come at a certain time and therefore carried a certain amount of oil. Five others did not know the hour of his coming and therefore brought extra oil. They were wise. They did not know the hour of his return and so they prepared uh, appropriately. It's interesting, is it not? We see in verse 5, he's delayed 
and they're not ready. Verse 10 follows on from that. And while they were going to buy the oil, the bridegroom came. The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. The groom did not come when the foolish virgins expected him. Verse 5. Conversely, the groom did come at a time when they did not expect him to come. Verse 10. In other words, their expectations were completely wrong. They were not prepared. They were not wise enough to think ahead. It's interesting, of course, all this is a picture of people who are ready or unready at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's certain traits we can note about these virgins. The first is this. Both wise and foolish virgins outwardly are practically indistinguishable. They look the same. They look the same. All the virgins want to be with the bridegroom, no doubt. They all have their lamps. They all have their expectations, albeit different expectations, of the time of his arrival. And according to their expectations, we see that some who were wise readied themselves. They brought what was necessary for the time of his coming. They knew not when the groom was coming, so they brought extra oil. And it says all of them slept, verse 5 again, even though the wise virgins became drowsy and slept while waiting for the groom, they were ready when the shout and cry went up, the groom has come. They were ready because they were wise. Clearly, friends, this is a picture for us, for our own times. It's a picture of Christ's second coming, and a picture of how we ought to conduct ourselves and how we ought not to conduct ourselves. What makes a person wise in this age, in the context of this passage? What makes a person ready for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing we would have to say wisdom points to is an acceptance of Christ as Lord and as Saviour. To be ready for his coming is to have faith in him, to have faith in him as Savior, to have faith in him as Lord, and to have faith in him as one who is coming at an hour we do not know. That's the problem, as we said last week, with all those who have tried to predict the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. They did not have faith in Christ or his words. They thought they could know more than Jesus about the hour of his second coming. What profound folly to be wise friends, to have sincere, true faith in the Savior, as Savior, as Lord, and as one who is coming again at a time we do not know. To be wise, then, means to order our spiritual affairs to that end, that we do not know when he's coming. It is to live our life under the banner, if God wills. This has special relevance to us when we come and participate at the Lord's table. Are we not making a statement then, the proclamation, the declaration? uh, You declare his death 
until he comes. In that moment, we're saying we are living because we know or living in a way because we know Christ is coming again, though we know not the hour or day. We should be ready for the return of Christ. That means, friends, now being wise means we disciple ourselves. We give ourselves to the worship of the triune God. We ensure our children, as far as we can ensure these things, are also discipled in the faith. We do not give ourselves to the things of this life in a manner which shows our priorities are earthly. Everything in this life must be done to ensure that we are ready for our eternal resting place and the coming of Christ. Our priorities, our hopes, our desires cannot be centered on this world. We must wait patiently with endurance and with expectation for the coming of Christ. The foolish virgins proved themselves unready. They were unprepared. What marks them out is this. They're thoughtless. They're careless. They have no forethought necessary for the waiting time. They lack faith, ultimately. The lack of wisdom is a lack of faith. They want the honor of being in the wedding party, but are not prepared to put in the work, the thought, the planning to enjoy that honor and to fulfill that responsibility. And note, when it's too late, it's too late for them. They realize that with, with terror. What do they do? Verse 8. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Notice that. They tried to mooch off the wise virgins. Lacking their own preparedness, they tried to ride on the back of others' preparedness. But the reality is the wise virgins were not going to share their oil. They couldn't, because then they would be made unready. The wise virgins could not step over onto the territory of the foolish virgins, because in doing so, they would have made themselves unfit and unready. The Christian is not to adopt the standards of the world. If anything, it must be the other way round. We do not compromise. We do not compromise when it comes to the kingdom. The foolish went to buy their oil, and in doing so, what happened? They missed the coming of the groom. While they were going to buy, verse 10, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And their absence of readiness at the groom's coming ensured they were locked out of the wedding feast. Verse 11, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. They'd had an invitation to the wedding, but the master shut them out and said, I do not know you. They were afforded a position of honor which they squandered. The master said, you will not come in. I do not know you. He forbids their entry into the marriage feast, which is, of course, a picture of the marriage feast of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is here saying to some who are part of the covenant people, who are Christians, I never knew you. You weren't ready for my coming. You lacked faith. You weren't looking for me to come again. You didn't trust my words. You shall not enter. We know, friends, that in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, there are two kinds of people. This passage says there's the wise and faithful. This passage also says there's the unwise and the unfaithful. You can be waiting in faith for the second coming of Christ, or you can be in the church and waiting without faith for the second coming of Christ. You see, these people pictured here, the foolish virgins, they're not rank unbelievers. They're people invited. They're the covenant people. Jesus, using a picture they would have understood, he's talking about the Jews of his day. He's talking about the church of our day. And I'm speaking broadly about the church now. The church filled with people who are not ready for the second coming of Christ. Filled with people who are not of faith. Friends, to live unready, unwisely for the coming kingdom is to live for self. It's to live without the fear of the Lord. It's to please self. It's to make a choice. Though the externals of religion look nice and polished, there's nothing on the inside. The externals might look good but there's death on the inside because externals mean nothing if we don't have Christ as Savior. What a great terror that's going to be on their last day. If we're found to be foolish, our last day, if we're found to be foolish, to think we're saved, to think we're safe, to think we're going to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, to hear the words instead, I do not know you. It's a call to each one of us today, friends, to ensure that we truly not just belong to the household of faith, but by faith we belong to the household of faith. On the back of that, Jesus says, verse 13, watch therefore. For you neither know the day nor the hour. In other words, ready yourself now. Be wise now. Be of faith now. Put your earthly affairs in their proper order. Put your spiritual priorities first. Seek treasures that are in heaven, not on earth. Be wise in your earthly living that you might enjoy heavenly living. That's what it is to be wise, I think, waiting for the second coming of Christ. But we're also to be faithful. Now, this is a longer passage, and I'm not going to hit all the details. And indeed, parables generally were not meant to hit all the details. But the question our Lord is now asking, moving on from wisdom, is about faithfulness. Are you waiting faithfully for the Master? Again, there's a privilege, sure, a great privilege. The master goes on a journey and he gives his finances to his servants. What a privilege that would be to to give your money into the hands of your servants and say, look after it well, profit my kingdom. He gives his servants care of his finances. 
He calls his servants, verse 14, and entrusted to them his property. His property. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that this uh, parable is about your talents. The word talent there doesn't mean abilities, okay? It's what most people think about this. Use your talents for God. That's a true statement. But this is not what's being taught here. The talent is the master's property. The talent is the master's money that he's entrusting to his stewards so that they might use it wisely and multiply it. He's entrusting his servants to profit the kingdom of heaven. He goes on a journey and he gives money to be cared for by his servants. And he gives to his servants differently, did you notice this, according to their ability. Verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. To the most able steward or servant, he entrusted the most. To the least able, he entrusted the least. But he still entrusted his finances into the hands of his stewards. He did so with discernment. He looks at them and says, they're not all the same. They can't all be treated in the same way. I'll deal discerningly with them. He deals generously with them. He gives them his money. He gives them his riches. Make something of it. This is a good master putting responsibility in a discerning and honoring fashion in the hands of his servants. The most able servant goes away, trades the five talents, and makes five talents more. He comes back to his master with ten talents. So also the one with two talents goes away, trades, works, invests, doubles his money, comes back and presents four talents to his master. Here's the difference. They were faithful. The one-talent servant was unfaithful. Unfaithful. He didn't do anything with the money. He didn't trade it. He didn't work it. He didn't invest it. He didn't seek the, the, the blessing of his master's kingdom and his master's house. He buried it in the ground. He's essentially saying, as long as I don't lose my master's money, as long as I don't make a loss on what I've been given, I'll be okay. That's important. As long as I don't lose what I've been given, I'll be okay. The irony is that's precisely what happens to him at the end of this passage. He has his talent taken from him and given to the one who has ten. In other words, he's not seeking to improve his master's kingdom. He's not seeking to expand his master's kingdom. He's not seeking to bring blessing to his master's kingdom. In fact, he's not at all interested in his master. When the master returns, verse 26, he calls him wicked and slothful. He's lazy. It doesn't go well for this servant on his master's return, verse 24. And verse 24 really reveals the heart of this servant, this kingdom citizen. Notice what he says about his master. Verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here have what is yours. 
That's not the master of this passage. And it's certainly not the master of the kingdom of grace, Jesus Christ. Certainly not a fair description of Christ or of the Father. His master generously and with a discerning manner entrusted to him, honored him, privileged him with what? Yes, a talent of money, but really with covenant status, with being born into the covenant of grace. So we baptized Violet this morning. It's a great picture. There's tremendous privilege to being baptized into the church of Jesus Christ. There's pr- tremendous privilege in having membership in the church of Jesus Christ. Would we ever say of God, we knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow? We wouldn't dream of speaking of our Savior like that. And neither should this servant have dreamt of speaking of his master that way. The bottom line is this. The servant despised the master. He hated his service. He hated that he had to render service to another. He looked for the easy way out. He did nothing with what the Lord had given him. In other words, friends, he's unfaithful. Unfaithful. He's done nothing with his privilege. He's done nothing with his responsibility. He didn't work out his stewardship, if I can borrow the words of Scripture. He didn't work out his stewardship of the one talent with fear and trembling. And consequently, he's repaid for his wickedness. You wicked and slothful servant, You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Notice that's a question. It's right, I think, to interpret it as a question. The master's not saying that's what I am. He's saying that's what you think I am. Then why on earth did you didn't invest my money? If you knew me to be that way, though he's not in reality, why in the world would you simply bury it in the ground? Because I will reap where I did not sow. Now, what the master's doing is taking the man on his own terms and bringing judgment to him according to his unfaithfulness. Verse 27, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. But to the faithful servants... The five-talent servant, the two-talent servant, verse 21, is what what, what, what he says to them. His master said to them, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Which master says to a servant, enter into my joy? Christ does. Christ does. He says, I've gone to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Which master on earth says that that to his servants? This is not the once-in-a-year Downton Abbey where the Lord of the Manor invites the servants upstairs for the Christmas party. This is eternal life with Christ, where we're told we shall reign and rule with him forever. We will rule over ten cities, twenty cities, whatever it might be. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You've made something of the privilege I gave you. What are we being taught? We're being taught that the unfaithful servant, unfaithful servant, was unfaithful for two reasons. He had no love or esteem for his master. He viewed him suspiciously. He despised his graciousness and his kindness. He even despised the trust that the master put into his hand. He wanted position without stewardship or responsibility. And consequently, because he thought that way of his master, he behaved in the way he did. He was unfaithful. The danger is, friends, that we think that that's just for people out there. It says the kingdom of heaven will be like this. The church. The church will be like this. Could this be a lesson for us today? Do we have that love, that commitment to our master? Do we love him as savior? Do we love him as Lord? Do we love him as master? Do we really have that faith in him? And are we using that faith to be faithful? That faithfulness is measured in action, at least visibly so. We all know what it means when we say so-and-so, he or she is a really faithful person. We know what we mean by it, don't we? that we can see their faith being outworked in their lives on a daily basis. They're steadfast, they endure, they're kind, they're gracious, they're compassionate, they bear burdens, they serve. And when they're done serving, they serve some more. Godly desires, godly activities, that's a faithful person. That's what these servants were. Conversely, we also know what the unfaithful person is like. They might be good at the talk of religious matters, but they don't walk in the ways of the Lord. There's a discrepancy in a grand way, an inconsistency between what they say and how they live. There's not many marks of grace in their lives. Our Lord uses this parable, friends, to remind us there will be a reckoning. Verse 28. Take the talent from him, the one-talent steward, and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. If you have faith, and you are faithful and wise, God is telling us he will bless us immeasurably in the life to come. He will have an abundance. The one who has not faith, even what he has, think of covenant status, membership in the church, even what he has, if they're faithless, that will be taken away. It is not covenant status which saves. It is not baptism which saves. It's not church membership which saves. It's faith in Christ. Christ saves. And true faith, sincere faith, that is what connects us to Christ. There's a reckoning here, a picture of the day of judgment. 
that on that last day, God will ask each man, woman, and child, what have you done with the stewardship, with the trust that I gave you? And if all you can say is, well, I buried it in the ground and here, have it back. He'll say, depart from ye. I never knew you. Friend, if that's you today, looks good on the outside, but you have no faith, repent. Repent. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Look to Christ today. We urge you. May it be that none of us in this room is lost on that final day. And if you are of faith, friend, serve, invest in the kingdom. Think well of your God. Think well of your Savior. Don't think like the one talent servant. Do you think his character good? Do you think his commission to you reasonable? Do you think his kingdom worthwhile? Do you consider yourself a servant son or a servant daughter of the kingdom of heaven? If so, serve the Lord with gladness. Be wise. Be faithful in the commission of your duties, not for your own glory, though God will give you that but for the glory of our great God in heaven. Live wisely now. Discern the times. Be faithful in your duties. And in doing so, you will be ready for the second coming of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we plead with you. As the hymn says, wean us from earth and all its pulses move, that we might set our mind upon that which is above. We might lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. O Lord, be merciful to us from the youngest to the oldest. May our lives be characterized as those who are living wisely, ordering our affairs, and living faithfully, serving rather than being served in the kingdom of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.